service. Uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for us to celebrate uh, all that God is doing in our midst. I just want to quickly say, you know that Rooted is a safe place when people feel comfortable to talk about their armpits, right? <laughs> like, if you, were, you walked in, maybe it's your first time, and you're wondering, like, oh, is this a home for me? Is it safe? Your armpits are safe here at Rooted. Thanks for sharing. Um, we are currently in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've been in the book of Corinthians since February. We're actually about to wrap up, so there's only two Sundays left. And so I get the privilege this Sunday on our baptism service uh, to wrap up the longest chapter that Paul wrote in the New Testament. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the longest chapter that he wrote. And so we have a lot to get through. And so I'm going to move quite quickly because I want to get to the baptisms. I want us to celebrate together. And I just want to put it out there. We might go slightly longer than we usually do. All right. So I just want to prep you for it. Um, I'm still going to try to preach some minutes. And, um, but, uh, but, but like what, what I like to do uh, is read the passage. Even though it's long, I think it's important for us to read the passage first to prepare our hearts uh, before we jump in. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible or a Bible app. Uh, I'm going to read it to us, and I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for you. I ask that you pray for me, that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here this very morning. And so meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to be reading from verse 35, from verse 35, hear these words of our Father. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seed its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is written, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Is everyone still okay? Right? Let's keep going. Verse 50. What am I saying, brothers and sisters, is this. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible and will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. 
when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly thankful for your word. Um, we are thankful that it continues to work in our lives, that it continues to transform the, the individual lives of people. And so I'm asking that you would do that this morning, that you would meet us where we are, that you would reach deep into our hearts, into the places of despair, of desperation, of death, and that you would show us that we desperately need you. I pray against any distractions here this morning and ask that you uh, would be so present that we would only see you. And so it's to that end, Lord, I ask that you would stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. God, you are our king. You are our redeemer. Would you have your way in this place? In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. So there's a lot to get through, all right? So last week, Paul, uh, Kenny did a phenomenal job unpacking the first bit of First Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is addressing the resurrection. He's unpacking the resurrection. And so he continues this morning. So from verse 35 to 41, Paul explains the resurrection in everyday terms, right? This is incredibly confusing. Even for those who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, the, the concept, the reality, the beauty of the resurrection is still somewhat confusing. And so Paul finds it necessary to explain it to the church in Corinth. He's explaining it to us in everyday terms. He does this in verse 35 to 41. See, we must remember that Paul's teaching on the resurrection is what got him laughed out of Athens, so before he went to Corinth, he was laughed at. In presenting this theology of the resurrection, he was laughed at. So he comes to Corinth, a place where Greeks and Romans reside, and, and they, their beliefs were, were all over the place. It was all over the place. And so as he's unpacking the resurrection, he's asked two questions. Those questions are, how are the dead raised? And the second is, with what type of body do they come from? How are the dead raised? And then what kind of body will they have once they are raised? And so let's answer those. How are the dead raised? The first question Paul simply answers by saying, God will do it. He says, God will do it. He will do it with his infinite power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same power he will use to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. It's the same power that he will use to put an end to all sin, all sickness, all brokenness, and all death. This gospel of resurrection and restoration is so incomprehensible to our own human experience. We just don't get it. We just don't get it. We wrestle with it. And I've been hearing some stories that even in this past week at your city group, some of you were wrestling with this. It's so incomprehensible. So how are the dead raised? I'm glad you asked. See, the reality of heaven can be a little bit morbid. 
right? It can be a little bit morbid, melancholic. I mean, think about it. To long for heaven, one must embrace death. If we are to long for heaven, we must embrace death. We must acknowledge it. I mean, think about it. How do we get to heaven? Well, something terrible has to happen. If you are a Christian here this morning, if you've crossed the line of faith, how do you get to heaven? Something terrible must happen. Death must occur. So we often default to asking all sorts of questions about the details. To, to try to understand this, we, we ask all sorts of questions regarding the details. And in doing so, sometimes we miss the point of what God has done to preview what he's going to do. We completely miss it. The second question, with what type of body do they come in? So if God is going to raise these individuals, those who believe in Jesus Christ, then what type of body will they have? This is often referred to as the zombie question. I mean, that's what's popular in our culture at the moment, right? The zombie apocalypse and, and the walking dead. It's everywhere. And so many of us, we tend to think, well, the resurrection will all be like zombies, just kind of walking around, half dead, half alive. Some talk about reincarnation. Maybe it'll be a reincarnation, because that makes a little bit more sense. But then we must ask the question, if I have a limb cut off and buried, when I come back, will that limb be reattached? Because when I look at the zombies, it's kind of weird, like, no arms, eye missing. So I'm going to ask the question, if I'm going to align the resurrection to that, then what happens if I've lost my arm? Will it be reattached? Another question is, if a baby dies, will it come back as a baby or as an adult? Those are legitimate questions. What if I die at 90? By God's grace, he allows me to live until I'm 90. Will I come back as a 25-year-old? I'm sure many elderly people ask that question. What about cremation? If I'm burnt, what does that mean for my resurrection? These are great questions, legitimate questions, and ones I think we must ask. Here at Rooted, we say it on and on and on. Listen, we want us to be those who ferociously ask the Scripture's questions. We must also understand that some questions we can't answer. Some questions we can't answer. There are many places where, where Scripture is silent on issues. And so I come before you humbly and go, there's certain things that I just I don't know. I don't have the answers for them. And so where Scripture is silent, we must be silent. Be careful not to start making things up. Where Scripture is silent, we must be silent. But where Scripture is clear, we should be clear. Where Scripture is clear, we should be clear. And this is one of those times in Scripture where it is clear. Regarding the resurrection, it is incredibly clear. There is no reincarnation. There is no reanimation. What the Scriptures tell us is that there will be transformation. That there will be transformation. Formation. You see, Paul points us to the Creator and how He has intentionally designed the resurrection into His creation through planting and growth. In part, so that we can begin to understand this supernatural concept. Because the resurrection is supernatural. 
It's supernatural. See, in order for a seed to grow into a plant, it has to be sown. More specifically, it has to be buried. If it's going to produce anything, it has to be buried. A buried seed begins to break down. Literally, it's destroyed as a new life begins to sprout and takes shape. It's a miracle of God. Jesus also talks about a seed. Jesus also talks about a seed, pointing us to our resurrection in John chapter 12, verse 24. He says, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. See, we do not possess the power to cause a seed to become a plant. None of us do. This is the doing of the almighty God. So is the same regarding our resurrection. This is a work of the almighty God. It is a supernatural work. Watch the logic, right? So, so Paul is using a seed to explain our resurrection. Watch the logic. If this is true regarding the supernatural power, then he who possesses the power will also determine the manner in which the resurrection occurs, regardless of how confusing it is. If God is the one who is powerful, he's the only one that can make this happen, if we believe that, then we also must believe the reality, the beautiful truth that he will determine how it happens. And so even when it goes beyond our understanding, because we believe that God is sovereign and almighty and seated on his throne, then we must also believe in the way that he's going to do it, that he is fully in control. This points to the sovereignty of God. But this transformation, this transformation that Paul is unpacking here is both dramatic and beautiful. It is both dramatic and beautiful. You see, when you look at a single seed, there's almost nothing remarkable about it. If you take a single seed, nothing remarkable about it, nothing amazing about it. And if you don't know the process of sowing, you would most likely never assume that burying it could produce something new and beautiful. You probably wouldn't know that. See, I am no farmer. Might be a surprise to many of you. But I'm not a farmer. I'm not even a gardener. I actually thought about working on our backyard. It's been a mess. If some of you guys have been to our place, it is horrible. And it's probably because I haven't watered it in like seven or eight months. Trying to save water, thinking about Cape Town, okay? And... Um, and so my wife is like, listen, we need to do something here. So I start chatting to a few people here at church. I'm like, hey, we should like have a work day where a number of us come out and we start digging and we, we put in the seeds. You know, we'll have a braai, cold, refreshing beverages of the fermented nature. It'll be epic. One day goes by, two days go by, three days go by, and I'm like, uh, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> Who do we pay to make this happen? I am no gardener. I, I'm not a farmer. But I can't deny that there's something beautiful, something beautiful about this, this transformation that happens when you put a seed into the ground and bury it and then wait a little bit. Something amazing happens. My backyard will begin to blossom. Plants will grow. The difference is remarkable. What was once a barren field is now filled with vegetation and plants and flowers. See, in the same way, an individual seed produces an individual plant. There will be continuity between our buried body and what is to come. 
Another way to say it is, what is sown is connected to what is grown. What is sown is connected to what is grown. Yet the difference will be as dramatic as a single grain and a mature plant with its new attributes. That's how different it'll be. But Paul continues to point to God's creation. God makes things regular, but not uniform. He makes things regular, but not uniform. See, people are different. We're different from animals. We're different from birds, from the fish. He even goes on to say that stars are different from the moon because he has made them. Each one is glorious in their own way, and each is made for its specific environment and for a specific purpose. This points to God's creative genius. God knows what he's doing. Regarding our resurrection, he knows what he's doing. It points to his creative genius, and it also points to his creative intentionality. His creative intentionality. Why why am I saying this? Because I know many of us in the room will still grapple with this, this theology, this beautiful truth of resurrection. But hear this. Hear this. For those who wrestle with it, look at God's portfolio. Just look at God's portfolio. If you're struggling to to trust him on this resurrection, look at the rest of his creation. It will reveal to you that he is good and that he is powerful and that he is gracious and that he has a plan. Look to your own life. For those who have crossed the line of faith, your own life is God's portfolio to the world. Because I know the resurrection is, is difficult to fathom. Largely because we don't see it every day. We don't see it every day. So there's maybe other things that we we see God doing and we go, okay, cool, I can trust him with that. That doctrine I can believe. That theology I can believe. That truth I can understand because I see it every day. But the resurrection is something I don't quite see every day. And so how am I to trust him? How am I to believe him? Well, look at the rest of his portfolio. I believe this is why Paul starts here by unpacking the resurrection in everyday terms. There is no accident. Nothing is accidental. Just like a seed buried in the ground that produces something remarkable and beautiful, so is our resurrection. But Paul continues. He moves on to talk about how the the resurrection provides hope for our insufficiency. The resurrection provides hope for our insufficiency. This word insufficiency, our failure, our inadequacy, our lack, our shortfall, our deficit, our unfitness. Anyone feeling depressed a little bit? He says in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then The spiritual, he goes on, verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. See, our bodies for this earth are suitable. They're not perfect, but they're suitable for this world. You don't believe me? 
look at the mirror. Or maybe run a 10K race. Maybe think about the last exam that you took. We're not perfect. Our bodies are not perfect. Our intellect is not perfect. Our emotions, how we handle our emotions is not perfect. It's suitable. It's okay. But it's not perfect. See, for the new heaven and the new earth, we will have to retire our current bodies and then be transformed for the next. We will have to retire our current bodies and be transformed for the next. See, in the beginning, God created the world, including man. In this text, he talks of Adam. And we are told that it was good. Scripture tells us that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God gave life. God continues to give life. And not only does he give life, but he sustains life. Adam and Eve's bodies were perfect and sinless. But through man's disobedience, through man's disobedience and rebellion, sin entered the world and infected every aspect of God's creation. All of humanity is now defined by Adam and will ultimately experience death as a consequence of that sin. But these aren't my words. Genesis chapter 3 verse 19 says, You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. This is a result of our sin. A result of our sin. We are dust. All of us. Let that sink in. We are dust. But dust made in the image and the likeness of God. But dust all the same. And because of our sin, because of the result of our sin, corruption. We see and experience corruption. Our bodies are perishable. They are given to decay. This is what Paul means when he says, sown in corruption. Our bodies grow, they mature, they get sick, and they ultimately break down. We age. Our bodies decay so much that they get to the point where they cannot function and sustain life, and then we die. This is a reality for every single one of us. That none of us are immune from this. Paul then says that we are sown in dishonor. This word dishonor, this means a loss of citizenship. See, we were created to be in God's kingdom, but because of sin, a great treason against God was committed. And so we have been exiled away from God's kingdom. The grave is the ultimate humiliation for humans who were crowned in glory and honor to rule God's creation. Our death is our humiliation. See, there is no death with dignity because death robs us of all dignity as we commit a lifeless body back to the ground. Many of you attended many funerals, I'm sure. There's no dignity there. As you hear the sand on the coffin, there is no dignity there. But Paul continues. He does not hold back. He wants us to understand this. He says that we are sown in weakness. No matter how hard you work to cultivate your body, 
it is inherently a weak instrument. Doesn't matter how many CrossFit sessions you go to, how much kale you drink, whether you decide to go vegan, our bodies are inherently weak. All of us. We have disabilities and limitations. This powerlessness is clearest in death. Clearest in death. Some say that our death is the one thing that we as humans cannot conquer. Man, we've come up with everything. Everything. And I believe that there's more, more to discover, more to invent, to make our lives more comfortable. But the one thing that we cannot escape is death. No matter how much anti-aging cream you put on your face, it's the one thing we cannot escape. We are sown in weakness. And so these bodies, are, our lives are fragile and hopeless and empty existence apart from the life-giving God. Ah, but there lies the gospel. Apart from the life-giving God. See, we cannot prevent our death any more than we can prepare our birth. We have no control over these two. We are completely incapable of reaching back to a holy God. In our sin, we cannot reach back to a holy God no more than Adam was to come up out of the ground on his own. Something had to be done. Something had to be done. See, Jesus came down from heaven to experience our existence. He was born. He grew. He lived like us. We're told that his appearance was as unremarkable as ours. He experienced temptation, exhaustion, and hunger. Jesus chose to limit his power and presence. And it's important for us to hear the words he chose. He chose to, to limit his power and presence. Rather than embrace him as king, Jesus was rejected. He was dishonored. He was beaten and ultimately faced the same fate that awaits all of us. Death. He was executed on a Roman cross and buried in a tomb. But here's where Satan missed that one critical Sunday school. All right? He should have showed up on that day. See, Jesus wasn't from the ground. His citizenship wasn't of this earth. He is from heaven. And so three days later, he rose again, displaying his power and glory to the world and guaranteed for those who believe in a resurrected body. Now, don't make the mistake of, of over-spiritualizing this resurrection and thinking it's less than what it is. Don't be weird. Please, don't, don't be that guy or that girl who, who's like, I've got to come up with this like, super weird way of explaining it, like hashtag Casper the ghost, but then it'll be like super cool. I'll be, just don't do that. Rather, just look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. When comparing the natural and spiritual bodies, it is not comparing a physical body with an immaterial spirit. After this life, we will not be ghosts or some mystical beings. We will have complete bodies with physical attributes and mind and appearance and emotions. And all of this will be because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Look to Jesus. After his resurrection, he, he walked around the earth. He hung out with people. He ate food. 
Look to Jesus for our resurrection. We will have complete bodies, physical attributes, physical attributes, all because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This, friends, is the gospel. This is the gospel. Romans 8, verse 11, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. He's connecting us to Jesus. For those who've crossed the line of faith, for those who've given their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, he's saying, you will be connected to Jesus. And so because he was resurrected, so will you. Jesus came and experienced this world and our bodies, so those in him can experience a new world and a new risen body that resembles his. One of incorruption, as the text tells us. See, our risen bodies will be eternally perfect with no ability to sin and no possibility of decay. One of glory, participating in the kingdom of God as co-heirs with Christ. See, our risen bodies will be completely sufficient, full citizenship restored, living out of the fullness of Paul's words in Philippians verse 3, 20 to 21, where he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly Wait for our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. One of incorruption, one of glory, and then we will be raised in power. See, we were designed to display the glory of God and steward his creation. Our risen bodies will have unlimited power. Unlimited power. Now again, don't make this weird. You will not be a superhero. But we will have unlimited power necessary for us to accomplish what God has called us to, and that is to rule, to rule with him in this new earth, in this new heaven. Christopher Rich says it this way. I love it. He says, we often say Jesus is the second Adam, which could imply that there would be a third and a fourth and a fifth. But the text here says that he is the last Adam, meaning that there's no other Savior coming in which to hope for. There is only one name, and that name is Jesus Christ. See, there are only two options. The singular question that matters for now and forever is, do you bear the image of Adam and of this dusty world, or do you bear the image of Jesus Christ, the King of Heaven? That's a question that, that all of us must face. All of us must face. We, we all have to come to. Do you bear the image of Adam in this dusty world or do you bear the image of Jesus Christ? Baptism. Baptism is a public declaration that I bear the image of the lost Adam. This is why we do this. It's to publicly declare, to say, listen, I bear the image of Jesus Christ. No longer the image of Adam. What a celebration. What a celebration. And as they come out of the water, we, we celebrate because now they join the body, the community, as we eagerly await Jesus' return to make all things new. Verse 50 is explicitly clear. Flesh and blood, those that identify with Adam and this world cannot inherit the kingdom of God because something corrupt and decaying cannot inherit something perfect and everlasting. The old cannot be part of the new. The old has to be buried for the new to come. He's incredibly clear in verse 50. And so the resurrection gives us hope for our insufficiency. 
But then Paul moves on. Our last point this morning, the resurrection impacts our mission victoriously. The resurrection impacts our mission victoriously. Verse 51, Paul writes, listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with mortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, something has to change in us. Something has to change in us. And there will be a change. The kingdom of God is not for those who are in love with this kingdom, this current world. It is for those who see the the decay of this world. And it's not for those who see the decay of this world and just want to try to patch up this world. The kingdom of God is not for those. For those who want to find comfort in this world. The kingdom of God is not for those. It is for those who want more. For those who want so much more. For those who long for more. It's for those who want a new world to come and desperately long for the return of King Jesus. See, the more we know about more about Jesus, the more we trust in him. The more we follow Jesus, the more our spirit conforms to him the more our perishable bodies groan under the strain of anticipating their expiry date and the freedom of a totally new body designed for glory and power and perfection of this kingdom. See, we look back to what Jesus has done on the cross and the resurrection, and we look forward to his return. Paul writes in the book of Romans that that the earth is groaning. Not just us, but, but the earth is groaning for the return of Jesus. That we look to the world and we see brokenness. We see evil. And it looks like it's winning. And so our hearts should groan for the return of Jesus. See, if this is you, it won't take too long. In your groaning, it won't take too long before you start asking the question, when? I'm sick and tired of reading stories about murders and and rape and, and people being abducted corruption. I'm sick and tired of reading about these stories and experiencing them. And so you look to the heavens and you go, when? See, this leads us to all sorts of charts and weird YouTube videos of people trying to predict when Jesus will come back. It's all part of the groaning, but but those videos are weird. When will the suffering end? When will we be resurrected? The question is not when. We shouldn't ask that question. It's not when. Paul tells us that this is a mystery. In fact, Paul says, I don't know, and I don't claim to know. I groan with you, but I I don't know. What has been revealed is how and what. We may not know the when, but what has been revealed to us is the how and the what. The what is that we will be changed, we will be transformed. This will be true for all who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Those in Christ Jesus who have already passed away and for those who will still be alive when he returns. We're told that at the last trumpet, 
at the last trumpet, things will change. This last trumpet is, is the last event in the history of God redeeming his people, rescuing his people from the corruption and dishonor and weakness of sin and death. We're told that this will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Paul later will tell the Corinthians that to be absent from the body, meaning to be dead, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In fact, Jesus tells the thief on the cross who had faith in him, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. The twinkling of an eye. He says, today, because of your faith, today you will be with me in paradise. This answers questions like, when we die, will we have to wait for this day? Will there be a long season of growth or, or transition like a plant? We will be sitting in some waiting room with our ticket number. The text tells us no. It'll be like in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so in the blink of an eye, God's people will go from a dead field of bare seeds to a robust field of wheat clothed in splendor by God. We will not be found naked as in death. We won't be left behind or dressed in worn out rags of our earthly bodies, but clothed by the spotless righteousness of Jesus in the presence of our King. See, the moment of death is when we will put on our Jesus suits. Better than any Armani or Gucci or whatever else you guys are longing for, we will clothe ourselves in our Jesus suits, transition from this history into eternity with imperishable, immortal bodies. That moment, that blink, that trumpet blast is when the last battle is over. God will stand, death and sin will be defeated forever, and all in Christ will celebrate. All in Christ will celebrate. God's people will finally mock death. Where is your victory? Where is your victory, death? See, until Jesus, death had always defeated every man and woman in all of history. Death is like a school playground bully. I know all of you were bullied, so I'm not even going to say put your hand up. All of us were bullied, and I'm pretty sure all of you remember the bully's name. I'll give you a moment to think about it. Mine was Benjamin. I remember it clear as day. Every day, he would come up to where the swing was, and because I, I wasn't like everyone else and going, yeah, yeah, no, let's leave this for Benjamin, I would get on the swing foolishly, and then he would knock me out, literally. And so death is like this, this school playground bully who other kids are afraid of, but, but then a new kid shows up, unsuspecting. But because he floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. Ah, rumble, young man, rumble. He knocks out the bully, giving others freedom from tyranny. This is Jesus. This is the gospel. And so at the last day, death will finally be crushed completely. I mean, listen to the prophetic words of Isaiah. Isaiah 25 verse 8, he says, he will destroy death forever. Talking about Jesus. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. This is something that even Isaiah from the Old Testament longed for. But he could anchor himself in the gospel. He could anchor himself in the promises of the scriptures. 
See, the sting is what we experience when we lose a loved one or we hear of a tragedy. It reminds us that death is still at work and on the prowl. You may be a Christian here this morning, but, but that sting is still there. Every time you hear of a loved one is, is maybe sick, you worry, you're anxious. When we hear about tragedy, the, the, the sting is there, reminding us that death is still on the prowl. But we're told that this sting one day will be gone. See, verse 56, Paul writes, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. I hope some of you are asking this question. How is the power of sin the law? I thought the law was good. Right? This is now confusing. The law is good. In fact, the law is perfect. But we must ask the question, what does the law do? What is the purpose of the law? See, the law is there to communicate about who God is. It puts God on display, the fact that he is holy and righteousness and that his standards are perfection. That's what he requires from us. The law tells us this. And so as we read the law, as we read the good book, the scriptures, we quickly realize that we fall short. We fall horribly short. And so the law is like a mirror. That we stand in front of and we see ourselves for who we are, clothed in sin, in desperate need of a Savior. And so this is what we try to do. We think that if I work a little harder, then, then maybe, maybe I can live up to what God has called me to. If I work a little harder or a little smarter, then maybe I can live up to these perfect standards that God calls us to. The reality is we can't. On our own, we can't. We will continue to slip into sin. Scripture tells us that even our good works, apart from Christ, are like filthy rags. And so even as we continue to read this and go, I want to be better, I want to be better, I'm going to do this on my own. Scripture says that they are filthy rags. And, and so the power of sin then becomes the law because you're trying to use the law to live up to the law. When in actual fact, you need a savior, the perfect one, the one who has lived up to the law perfectly. You need to put your trust in him. See, the power of sin is the law, but Christ satisfied the demands of the law. Therefore, Paul cries out in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when Christ died, he forgave sin and fulfilled the law and defeated death and obtained not just our souls, but also our bodies. Not just our souls, but also our bodies. Man, what glorious truth that this should lead us to celebrate. This was intentional for us to have Baptism Sunday with this passage because it, it should lead us to celebrate. But we should ask the text, how then should we respond? If all of this is true, if all that we have heard is true, how then should we respond? Verse 58, Paul writes, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. See, the resurrection impacts our mission victoriously. Yes, I know we live in a broken world filled with tragedy and corruption and immorality and evil. 
but because we believe in the resurrection, because we know that, that there's coming a day where Jesus will return and the sting of death will be removed and he will make all things new, we can stand. In the difficult times, we can stand because we can go, well, death, where is your victory? Death, you have nothing on me. Your, your false victory, if we could call it that, is, is temporary. Because when I die, in the twinkling of an eye, I'll be with Christ. So where is your victory? Man, that, that, should, that should impact us like you can never believe. So much so that in difficult times when everybody is leaving, the church is going, no, we're moving in. We're moving in. Because death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? It should change our mission. We should be steadfast, immovable. We should be the ones in our communities, in our workplaces, in our circle of friends and family going, yeah, we're not going anywhere. I know it's tough and I, I know it's difficult. I was recently in Zim, just this past week, looking to connect with some church planters and some churches doing phenomenal work. And, and you know me, I love awkward moments. And so we're driving in the car and there's this white guy driving us and I said to him, hey man, I'm gonna ask you an inappropriate question. I've learned from my wife, you need to prep those questions. So everyone in the car, all nervous, like, oh, okay, what's up? I said, hey, man, as a white guy, like, why would you stay in Zim, bro? And he lists me a number of reasons of, of why, right? Some of them is there's no options, people have nowhere else to go, and he goes through the list. And then the last one, he's like, well, here's mine. It's because I believe in Jesus Christ. And I know it's difficult, and in fact, there are difficult days ahead. But because I believe in the gospel, I'm steadfast. I'm immovable, and I will excel at everything that I do because I know that my work is not in vain. I will share this gospel with every single person so that they might come to faith and know of Jesus so that they too might be resurrected on that day. Souls and bodies entering into this new earth and this new heaven to enjoy the splendor of who God is. He looks to me and he says, I will give my life for that. I will give my life for that. I was convicted. Because now I had to ask myself this question, would I give my life up for that? If I read this and believe it, then I should. The resurrection impacts how we see the world. It impacts our mission. Because we operate from a place of victory. We operate from a place of victory. And so we celebrate. Friends, we celebrate. In fact, we're about to transition into some baptisms where we will celebrate because those who will be going into the water and coming out are publicly declaring that I stand with Jesus, that my life has changed. I believe everything that is in here. And so I too stand together with everyone else who has crossed the line of faith to say I am steadfast, I am immovable. I will excel in everything I do because my work is not in vain and that we eagerly await his return to make all things new. Let's pray. And so, Father, my, my hope, my hope is that this would be true of every single one of us. That we would look at the baptism differently. Maybe some of us are still wrestling with it I'm asking that your spirit would lead and give comfort and give insight and wisdom. 
And that all of this, all of this would point us to you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Point us to the cross, to the finished work on the cross. That Jesus, not only did you live the perfect life that we could not live, you died the death that we deserved. And it didn't end there that you resurrected, that you hung out on earth to display the power of the resurrection and then you ascended and that right now even as we are seated you yourself are seated at the right hand of the father interceding for us praying for us by name i know that you are praying for this time that as some are about to get into the water you are praying for them praying that they will persevere to the end that the work that you began in them that you will bring it to its completion And so lead us into that time. Transition us into that time, into a time of great celebration where we get to celebrate with others the work that has been done by the power of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.